Today on Care Under Fire, I have Michael Slattery with me. Slats has had an extensive career as an Army Beret Qualified Medic, seeing operational service in PNG, Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks for coming on, Slats. Yeah, no worries, Em. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're most welcome. Give me a rundown of your early years and your motivation for joining the ADF. Uh, early years? Well, I'm an only child born in a little country town called Swan Hill in Victoria. My dad was an auctioneer and stock and station agent for elders. Uh, mum was a stay-at-home mum. So we moved around a little bit all through sort of the western districts of Victoria, uh, up to Gundagai, where I went through my primary school. And then just uh, before finishing primary, we moved down to Melbourne. My dad got a, a position down in the head office down there as the, the chief land auctioneer of all Victoria and Riverina. So we, we moved down there and I finished off my primary school and then went into secondary school, which was entertaining in itself because it involved a couple of different schools with the Christian brothers, one that only went up to form four. So I had to then change schools and, and finish off uh, form five and six at a different school, uh, again in Melbourne. Then when I left school, Worked for a couple of years, actually with elders as well. I, I went into the, the stock and station agent side up in country Victoria and then back to Melbourne for a while and then enlisted in 86. So a long time ago. Yeah. And given I was a toddler back then, <laughs> um, tell me how Kapuka was and, and why you decided to join. Yeah, I think my motivations to join were pretty pretty deep-seated it was something that I'd, I'd always sort of had in the back of my mind i had a, a bit of a family history my mum's father was well actually enlisted into world war one uh, as a 15 year old and that didn't last too long he got dragged off the parade ground by a very angry irish catholic father uh, who came marching up and dragged him off by his ear so that sort of ended his career. Mum's brother was in the CDF for a little while and my dad was actually in the tail end of World War II. So he was, just as he finished his training, he was going through Kaura. So he was actually at Kaura during the Japanese breakout. So I heard a few stories about, you know, some of the things that happened there from him, you know, with some of the prisoners throwing themselves under trains and not wanting to be recaptured. And then he, he left not long after that. He was actually offered to go on the occupation forces to Japan, but, but didn't, to his uh, eternal regret. And uh, like I said, it, it was just something that sort of always been in the back of my mind. I did army cadets through the, the tail end of my secondary schooling with my next door neighbour, who was my best mate and had a great time there and i think that that just sort of embedded you know the way i wanted to go it was it was either that i'll become a priest so you know <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't be two polar opposites you know, again irish catholic background very involved with the church you know as a young fellow and and that was actually a vocation that i i um i did consider but yeah. um, i'm sure my mother probably would have been a bit happier if i'd have done that <laughs> 
you might not have ended up with as many tats. No, true. Oh, you never know. You never know these days. What were you doing in the cadets back then, running around with an SLR? Or yep, we were doing of a of a training evening. There was, you know, the the obvious little bit of drill, bit of weapons handling. You know, lying on the the floor of the the drill hall, actually going through M60 gun drills with you know blank ammunition on an M60, blank ammunition dummy rounds on an SLR. So it, it was it was interesting in the fact that I already knew the blueprint for drill for weapons and for theory prior to actually getting to Kapuka. So you you try to hide that sort of information, but it can't stay hidden for too long. You try and be the grey man, but they know that you know something. <laughs> yeah, they know you know something. It's like, is he an ex-Choco or what's what? going on? Yeah, but yeah. what's going on here? So how was Kapuka back then? What was the training like? Were they pretty rough on you? Well, let's put it this way. They didn't pull any punches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was back in the days when it was you enlisted for either three or for six years. I enlisted at the time for three years. Vividly remember the bus trip from Melbourne up through country Victoria, up into New South Wales, and then seeing sort of the lights of Kapuka coming out of the, the window of the bus. Just after dusk, we sort of arrived there just after six o'clock. Um, you know, everyone's a bit boisterous on the bus and then the cranky RP sergeant gets on at the front gate and, you know, tells you in no uncertain terms to shut the fuck up and just to listen in. But, yeah, it was um, it, it was a, a really good time. There was still that, you know, tail end of we'd been out, out of Vietnam, what, for then just over 10 years. Mm -hmm. So my, my platoon sergeant at the time was a, was a Vietnam veteran. I had a, an infantry platoon commander who was quite young and went on to a pretty good career and transport, armoured and infantry sector commanders. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty full on. There was, there was no downtime. I think we got to go to the boozer in about week eight maybe, but our downtime was spent sitting in the hallway polishing brass or polishing boots. You know, we had everything taken off us. Obviously, there were no phones back then, but I don't think we even got a got a radio to listen to in the rooms until, you know, probably week week eight, week nine, something like that. Mm. Mm. Distinctly remember someone falling out of a run and getting butt straight with an SLR and the whole platoon running over the top of it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> on instruction, yeah. yeah. So there, there was a little bit of dead ground counselling going on back then. Yeah. But obviously all that's changed. There was no such thing as, you know, your amber and your, your green cards anymore or then. Yeah, you learned who was in charge, I guess. And There was absolutely no doubt who was in charge. <laughs> yeah. And then you went on to um, Port C for your IET's medical. I did. How was that training? Well, considering I was the only medic that marched out uh, in my platoon, I went down to Port C with a bus full of about 10 girls. I think there was uh, probably seven or eight girls who were nurses or coming on, a, you know, the nursing assistant and a few dental assistants. So we got down there and then we had that holding pattern waiting until we got enough people to run that initial basic course. In terms of medical skills, do you remember what they were instilling then? Was it uh, field care, a bit of nursing stuff as well or...? Primarily, it was 
nursing oriented. So there was a lot of focus on the nursing care skills for camp hospitals, for the military hospitals. Uh, there, there was some field care. I mean, we had a couple of, again, a couple of ex-warrant officers who were, or warrant officers who were ex-Vietnam guys. Uh, one of my platoon corporals down there was uh, very qualified from the regiment. So he was he was a great uh, believer in, in our fitness and trying to mould us into better people. But, yeah, th- there was a smattering of field stuff, but not, not as much as what you would expect. That sort of didn't come on later or until later when you were within the unit and you were getting trained up in those actual skills. Yeah, fair enough. So then you posted into your first unit, 1RTB. Yeah, I got a, got a respite for about, I think it was about nine months, and then I was back there. <laughs> <laughs> so back there being a private, any different than the recruit oh, experience? Com- com- completely different when you've got a recruit actually addressing this private. It was, it's just, it was just in... Uh, I was, again, pretty blessed. I had some really good mentors. My platoon sergeant there was a great guy. The corporals we had to work with were awesome. I was basically handed over to one of the Lance Jacks, who was an ex-3RR guy who had changed over to medical, who was an absolute fitness fanatic, went on to be a PDI later on. So we weren't allowed to touch patients for the first probably four months Mm. until we'd been assessed uh, and trained up by the staff and also assessed by the doc, by the RMO. Yep. Once once he deemed that we were fit to, you know, assess patients and issue medications, we were then allowed to work individually and independently during sick parade timings because we used to have three sick parade timings. We'd have a morning, a lunch, and then an evening one. So the evening one, the majority of the staff would go home at 1600 and you would stay and do the evening. The duty medic would stay and do the evening sick parade. So you are basically, you were working independently as a digger, which was a great learning experience. It allowed you to sort of get on top of all those, those basic skill sets. And, you know, like I said, we were working independently. We were, as diggers, we were taught how to suture, we were taught how to cannulate. So we were doing all that then. Mm. Yeah, removal of moles. Um, yeah, so that, that stuff was sort of being taught then and we were being upskilled by the RMO, who, again, as I said, was a really great guy. He went on to be one of the RMOs in the regiment. So, yeah, it was um, a bit of a, a bit of a steep learning curve, but a really good one. So you really joined the peacetime army, but uh, mm. early on you still got a couple of opportunities to work overseas, providing medical support on Kokoda and also RCB Butterworth. What were those mm. experiences like? Well, I did Kokoda as part of an adventure training serial whilst I was at 1RTB. So there was a lot of corporals on that section commanders, a couple of sergeants, a couple of officers, and myself. I was was the only digger on it and I was there not only to take part in it but also to be med support. So we did Kukoda, we flew into Moresby a couple of days there and then flew over to the other side of the island and with a couple of P and GDF guys as our guides to do Kokoda. So carrying everything we needed for nine days. Um, So that was entertaining in itself. But I think it was probably about about day three in, one of the guys sliced his 
one of his fingers down to the bone with a machete. So here was here was me. Okay, well I've now got to do a suture in the middle of the jungle and hope this guy doesn't get infected. So stitched him up and put him on quite an extensive oral AB regime and we got back and yeah, it was all good. He still got his finger. He still got his finger. Good. Yeah. Nice yeah. one. <laughs> so yeah, that that was um that was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, looking looking after the guys in the field. Obviously, you know, they were able to look after themselves, but I was just a bit of a backup, I suppose, and you know, just carrying enough enough gear to to get everybody out of trouble but not must get myself into trouble. Great experiences and ability to use your skills as a medic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then RCB was once I then got up to Brisbane, I was attached to 6RER, myself and another medic. So we augmented a company rotation. So obviously, normally there's there's one corporal medic per, or back then there was one corporal medic per infantry company. So we augmented, so we ended up having a platoon each. So again, working in the field uh, and looking after a platoon of, of grunts was a great experience. So you're basically working with the platoon side and trying to make sure that these guys, particularly when we were down at, at Pilata at the Jungle Training Centre, which we, we spent a good three to four weeks down there, just uh, just making sure the guys were you know, healthy to be outfield and looking after any of the, the, minor, the minor ailments that they presented with. So just that, all that primary healthcare stuff. Yeah, so that was that was invaluable. I think sort of embedded my desire to to stay with and be in in land mm-hmm. command as it was back then. Yeah, I had I had no desire to go to anywhere else, really. And while you were posted to Six RAR, sort of nine, ten years in now, in the mid nineties into your career, mm-hmm. uh, you decided, I guess, to combine that love of medicine and uh, military skills and yeah. you attempted selection what was the drivers yeah. for that you know again that was one of those things that i suppose a lot of people look back on their careers and think what if mm. and i had a few friends that had attempted selection prior to being at six hour hour i was at uh, 11 field ambulance and one of the guys from there or well, we had Actually, our commanding officer, our RSM, and my platoon sergeant were all very qualified medics. So I think that fueled that quite heavily. We were all pretty motivated. So once I was back in, back from uh, Kapuka the second time, I was in six and decided, well, you know, now's the time to have a crack. So went on the summer selection in eighty sorry, ninety-six. It was about day day nine, day ten, jumping out of the back of a mod with a full pack on and compressed a disc in my back. So put put paid to that pretty quickly. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was that was a great time actually. It's you know, looking back on it when you think, you know, flying from Brizzy to Perth on a herc, and then landing in Raf Pierce and just getting herded off like a bunch of cats, mm. and straight to do 
your barrier tests again and then straight in the world's coldest pool to do your swim test and then back on another another bus and up to bid noon and you know sleeping on the hard standing there that first night was um it, it was pretty intimidating mm. you know one of those those silent running courses where you don't get any feedback and there's no there's no support and designed to be that way so that exactly they can work exactly. out your intrinsic motivation for being there yeah yeah 100 percent. Mm. yeah and i you know, I saw that later on, obviously, from the other side with um, with a couple of different postings. So were you crushed to get injured and have that opportunity gone for the short term or you just sort of wore it and went back to the unit? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't the only one. There was there was a lot of people that were injured on that course because yeah. they were big courses. So there was a lot of people that, that got injured for whatever reason there's a lot of people that withdrew for whatever reason so we just all got herded into a into a tent until they had enough people there to chuck on a bus and then send back to to pierce and yeah. chuck on another plane to send home so yeah i can remember being flying back in through um in through sydney and we had a an overnight stop at richmond and there was myself and another guy who i knew from my time at 102B as a section commander, and he had dislocated both his kneecaps. And we sort of hobbled off to the boozer and um, a couple of the raffies there gave a bit of lip about, you know, the dudes that, the dudes that couldn't make it on selection and that created a, a bit of a ruckus and there was a, a little bit of a brawl that ensued. <laughs> a few words exchanged. <laughs> a few words exchanged, a few glasses got broken. I mean, yeah, it, it's a big deal. It's not something you just wake up one day and decide you're going to have a crack at. There's a lot of training and mental and physical prep going in each time. To yeah, yeah absolutely. So. It's it's a it's a big it's a big commitment. Absolutely, yeah. So then you went off to play with the gun buddies for a bit, one field, yeah. and you got a trip over to PNG with them for drought relief operations. What did that mm -hmm. involve? So Op Plestri in in '97, there'd been a, a major event uh, in PNG, so the Highlands and up along the, the Yapsi River, bordering into Western Jaya, were pretty much decimated. All the crops were decimated, so it was a it was a combined sort of effort with food relief and drought relief and intermixed with that we had a small medical contingent that would insert and do basically med caps in some of the smaller villages and allow the outlying villages then to come in and receive treatment that they probably wouldn't have any access to so we would train up or upskill and work with some of the pngdf guys out at trauma barracks and then usually about a team of from four to six we deploy into, into some of the villages and stay there for a couple of weeks, mm. allow the outlying villages to come in and receive medical and dental care because we'd always take in one to two med techs and dental techs. Yep. So, you know, everything. Again, all those injuries that have been sustained by, you know, village life from bush knives, falling out of trees, broken limbs that hadn't been reset correctly, you know, some wild skin infections that we'd never seen before. Mm. 
So yeah, that was that was really eye-opening. We would, as I said, spend a couple of weeks in there, get back into Moresby, uh, a quick rest, refit, do a bit of retraining with a new group or a core of the group that we just had, and then we'd redeploy to another another site. So we we basically did that for the for the six month period we were there. So we were out on just different tasks all the time. Yeah. It's um, great work that HAPs that the ADF do in terms of clinical exposure for the docs, nurses and medics and you get to see and learn and see things in those developing countries that you never get to see in Australia uh, and increase your sort of medical toolkit in that way. But obviously it's nation building as well and builds up our reputation as Australians in the region too. So. I reckon oh, 100%. it's a win-win all round. Absolutely. So after that, you headed off to for RAR, which were then, of course, later on to become the commando unit. You were requested to be posted mm-hmm. there, pretty keen to get back to an infantry unit as a medic. Yeah, pretty keen to get back into an infantry unit and um, getting in on the ground floor with with the unit. So they'd been, I think, re-rolled in 98. So it was the end of 99. I had my a good mate of mine who was posted down there as, as one of the CSNs, one of the guys that I worked with quite extensively at six. And he was raising the nitri combat cell and getting that sort of up and running. And I'd been involved with that for a few years. So I was pretty keen to get down there and get involved in that. And obviously get in and help with that that building and you know raise and train and sustain peace with the unit and we could see the writing on the wall that it was going to be something special so there was one at that stage permanent ira company being bravo company and you know beginnings of 2000 and through 2000 they then started to build up the capability of the unit and and bolster it out with with Mm -hmm. uh guys in from Singleton and raising other commando courses that got up and running during those. So that was a game where I, I stepped into assisting on selection courses and being involved in that in support roles and yeah. assistance and allowed me the time to, to also, I was still sort of getting back to that level of fitness that I needed and, and working on, on everything else. So just trying to, you know, getting guys on UM courses and getting guys qualified and getting everybody ready. And mm. you got to deploy the team more with them in 2001? Yeah, we deployed as a battalion group, ripped in and replaced one RER. Mm-hmm. So I was with the headquarter element at Balabo. So we had our... RAP set up there, just down below Balabo Hill, where five was set up in an aviation uh, setup mm-hmm. with uh, with AME. Yep. So yeah, spent six months there as part of the as part of the battalion group, just um, looking after the locals, looking after all the other guys. That, again, you know, your, your generic RAP stuff plus resus. We had a resus bay there, uh, X-ray facilities, a little bit of path. Uh, and anything that we couldn't deal with, we would you know, get them get them down the road to Dilly, to the Roll Three, or 
again, chuck them in the chopper and, and down the road to the roll through. Yeah. And you were treating some local nationals then? Yeah, a lot of local nationals. Yeah, yeah. Quite a few actually, you know, from a bit of road trauma. Again, just that generic day-to-day life stuff. Mm. You know, falling out of trees, kids having bike accidents, you know, bush knives through legs, all of the above. (laughs) And were you allowed to evac uh, the locals if required via AME or did they have to be pushed back to kind of more of a local vehicle system? There, there was some that went via AME, but generically the AME was set up for uh, Australian and, and NZ assets if needed. Yeah. But, yeah, there, there was cases where they, they were utilised on case-by-case scenario, you know, for some of the outlying areas if needed. But um, generally, you know, we would get them into to Balibo and, and treat them as best as we could there. Which, again, you know, they'd get treatment there that they wouldn't receive in any other way. Yeah, so you can feel good about absolutely value-adding there and helping people out. So while you were deployed September 11, 2001, the Mm. Twin Towers fell. There was a Mm. massive uh, change and global terrorism really come onto the map. What changed Mm. for you immediately in the aftermath of those attacks? For for myself and for the unit, we were told very soon after, probably within about two days, that we were going to redeploy a core group of guys back to Australia to raise Tag East and they'd be going to Perth and conducting training to to qualify that core group of guys to, to stand up Tag East. Mm. Um, so... I was actually in in that core group initially. I was earmarked by, by the OC to return and to be one of the originals raising that uh, capability. That lasted about two days until they turned around and said, no, you can't go because you haven't got your green lid yet. So <laughs> yet another you know, poor decision. But anyway, that's fine. But there wouldn't have been many medics that did no. well there, there, there were there were guys in perth it was just a matter of getting operators qualified at the time so the you know the drive to get support mm. staff onto the courses wasn't as great to start off with but it, then we just started pushing it to get people up so uh, upon your rta you applied for selection again yep and how did you go that time round? uh that time round. A lot better. Uh, <laughs> no, that time round, we did the the special forces entry test was actually conducted up at Singleton. So again, jumped on a whole lot of buses and everybody chugged on, chugged on up to Singleton. And you've got to meet all your gates, all your drop dead tests, your push ups, your pull ups, um, your swim time, and your three point two run time in. That, that that stage it was uh, boots, webbing, and rifle, and yep. can distinctly remember running down the the main drag of Depot Company into a a massive headwind in about thirty eight degrees, getting tunnel vision, crossing the line, getting told my time, and told to go and stand over there because I'd failed the timing by two seconds. 
and I was going to be mm-hmm. going to be returned to my unit. So jumped on the bus, went back down to uh, 4RR. The very next day, walked past the CO, and he's like, "Hey, mate, aren't you supposed to be up at selection?" I'm like, "Yeah, boss, I failed the three point two. And he, he he was just like gobsmacked, and he's like, "Oh, I'll get that fixed." And he's like, "I just said no, don't worry." I said, "My the paperwork's back on your desk. Just resign it. I'll go on the next one." So I did the next one about a about a month later because I ran them every every so often and didn't make the mistake of of going out and trying to make sure my my timings were good the day prior and achieved the aim with that. Got picked up for the next CSTC and rolled onto the next commando selection training course that was being run in two thousand two. And you weren't a super young bloke at this point. You're in your mid thirties, and yeah, I was. I was thirty six. <laughs> so you got ten years and on the other guys, and twenty years in the ADF of carrying heavy things and yeah, yeah, stuffing backs and knees. So physically, you're doing all right at this point. <laughs> physically, physically, very challenging. You know, it's uh, it's one thing to be a nineteen year old and you know being doing weapons drills with a pack on your back. You know all day every day um it's a bit of a different different beast when you're 36 and (laughs) a little bit bent bent and buckled yeah (laughs) absolutely so you got through that time Mm. and massive achievement yes as far as i'm aware i still think i'm the oldest dude to do it that that may be wrong now but at the time and for a good period afterwards i was the oldest the oldest guy to attempt it and get through did you get called grandpa the whole time? Or? I, I may have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got to deploy to Iraq after that, medical mm. detachment Balad. Tell me about that trip and what you did over there. Yeah, so that was get three. So I was on the last rotation. There was obviously three rotations in each of them were around about six months, so primarily embedded in an American hospital at Balad, which was about an hour and a half by Hilo north of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. So I went over as uh, the CSM of that debt. So that debt was very nursing officer heavy, so primarily uh, ICU nurses with some uh, emergency nurses mixed in and a smattering of medics, so I think there was about uh, half a dozen medics on that on that team. So uh, ripped in through through Saudi, um, and in, then into into Biap. Had a couple of days in Baghdad, kicking back at one of Saddam's old palaces before we could hitch a ride up to Balad. Uh, you know, sitting in the green zone, it's still pretty active. We're still getting rocketed and mortared every day. Um, then got up to to Balad, which was I'm I'm not certain if it was uh, one of Uday or Kusay's private airfield at one stage until uh, our friends the Americans decided to J down the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that was basically a, a, a primary airfield. So U.S. Air Force on one side, U.S. Army on the other side, and the three thirty second. AMDG was the the Roll Three Hospital that was there under tent. Yeah. So 
we were dealing with um, all the battlefield trauma that was arriving from some of the major battles that were going on in Fallujah. We were receiving civilian casualties from all over the place. Uh, so we, we were the, the busiest and largest, as I'm aware, forward deployed facility in country. The time there was, you know, it was pretty busy. We were doing 12-hour shifts. Uh, like I said, mainly the nursing officers were working in ICU. There was a couple that worked in ED. Um, for me, I was on day shift, so I'd work uh, six or six. And quite quickly, it, it became pretty apparent to, to the Americans or whether they knew it prior or not that the the skill sets that we could provide were a lot different to what their medics had because obviously they're very one role centric yes whereas we we had a lot of skill sets that we could bring to the table yeah um so being being the senior medic in country or the senior medic there army medic there um i was in charge of two trauma beds so i was working with a with a pa and obviously with a couple of ad trauma surgeons uh, and then our, our teams working on the beds as well. So I was running either one or two bays uh, independently. Mm. So yeah, quite a quite a big job for what would would normally be you know either a doctor or a PA. Yeah, absolutely, huge step up. Lots of trauma. Yeah, lots of lots of trauma. Really busy. Um, like I said, we're getting you know everything. A lot of IED, a lot of blasts, a lot of GSWs. The you know, the insurgents were getting really clever. They were they were using shaped projectiles that could punch through Bradleys, that could punch through armoured vehicles. They were, you know, setting IDs with LPG cylinders in front of them, so a lot of burns and, you know, and traumatic burns, you know, 80 90%. People probably who haven't been exposed to those sort of IED injuries probably don't realise just how complex they are to manage oh, because yeah. obviously you have massive trauma, you have often bilateral lower limb amputations or especially mm -hmm. if it's been a um, victim-operated IED or pressure plate or they're even in a vehicle, same, same, isn't it? And then they mm. often have those fractured pelvis, massive blood loss, sometimes open abdos. There's mm. that uh, injury to the chest, collapsed lungs, and then you've got, yeah, you've got a head mm. injury from that blast wave and then you have burns on top of yeah. The, yeah. the lot of it so very complex to manage because what's good for the burn is not always what's good for the hypervolemia versus for the head as well when you've got pressure yeah exactly exactly you know and you'd, you'd go through those those complex multi-traumas right down to you know some guy who comes yeah. in with you know the tiniest fragmentation wound to his chest and, and he's a KIA and he's yes. a DOA and and you look at you just look at the the differential from wounding, and you know it's just wrong place, wrong time, and yeah, you get guys that we have one or multiple guys that came through with you know three three to four limb amputation, uh, you know, and and their survivability rates just went up yep. just due to the the you know the expeditious application of tourniquets in the field, you know, and and just the maintenance and and the training that was being pushed down you know at the soldier level so you know it was it was phenomenal 
TCCC was really being funneled out then, wasn't it? TCCC, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was it was being being taught at the basic level. I was teaching uh, that on my downtime with a couple of the other American assets. So we were actually upskilling people in country as well and just keeping that refresher training rolling mm. through. Mm. And these casualties, mostly coalition, mostly American Marines, did you see any Iraqis as well? Yeah, a lot of, as you said, a lot of US service personnel, uh, a lot of Iraqi civilians, uh, Iraqi police, we had, um, I remember one case, we had a, uh, a senior Iraqi policeman who'd been shot. Uh, he had a GSW in the head and he came through onto my bay. So I was lucky enough in that was actually a, a little bit quieter that day. So I got to follow him through from hitting my trauma bed. Uh, I took him through into CT. We scanned him. He came out of CT. Uh, 762 short was still lodged in his head. So came out of CT, did a hard right turn straight down into theatre. There was two really experienced neurosurgeons there and they're like, they just looked at me and they went scrub in slaps and I'm like, sweet. So scrubbed in and, you know, they ended up doing um, a craniectomy on him. Um, so, you know, people ask me, you know, if you're a brain surgeon, I'm not really, but I've had a bit of experience. <laughs> So, so they, here's me chucking out, you know, uh, you know, some intracranial pressure breeding devices into his head, and then um, oh, while you're there, just take that that piece of skull and cut his abdomen open and pop it in there for us, will you? I'm like, okay. okay. So, yeah, it, it's just interesting that you, as I said, you know, the experiences that you get and the the skill set you have. Are recognised at a different level, and when when that's recognised, you're allowed to do a lot more. Yeah, and they see how capable you you are at managing yeah. an airway yeah. and managing the trauma. Yeah. So, what did you put that bit of his skull in his abdo just to keep the bone alive while they were operating before they replaced it? Or well, yeah, because they'd done a craniectomy, not a craniotomy, so they'd removed it, and they were going, they weren't going to put the um, the skull plate back in. They wanted to to keep it viable, just to because his brain was so swollen, they wanted to allow it time to for the herniation to yeah. subside. Um, so, yeah, from what from what they told me, that could stay in situ in his in his abdo for up to three months. Incredible. I think, yeah, I think they took it out about about a week and a half later. Yeah. And um, again, you know, quality of life for these guys once that's been done, you know, they they haven't got any ongoing care once they leave. Know, the facility and go back you know into the community so you know unfortunately his you know his quality of life probably wouldn't have been the best mm. but you know you, you do the best with what you've got and then yeah, yeah that's that's unfortunately one of the one of the uh one of the issues that we have when we, we're there and just trying to do what we can we we can't do that follow-on care yeah you can't ensure that there's the rehab and all that yeah no no but you saved his life and he survived, which is just incredible, really. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty nuts. Not a lot of people walk away from a GSW to the head. No, not too many. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not, not in the vast majority that we saw. And you kind of stayed 
pretty close to your infantry routes while you're over there too. A few little sneaky trips outside the wire as well. Yeah, a couple of little sneaky sneakies up there, but um, mm. yeah, there was um, a couple of uh, American guys that I got quite close to over there that were working with the uh, Iraqi police and, and doing some mentoring and um, we did a couple of sneaky little trips and after hours when uh, when no one was looking. How did the Iraqis relate to you? Because obviously we were there uninvited in their country mm. at that point. Was that a friendly interaction or a bit of hostility at times? Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of both. Uh, I think there was that awareness that we were there to help mm. uh, and there was also a little bit of resentment. But on the whole, the the majority that I dealt with were quite happy to accept the care that we were giving and accept what was going on. Um, we did see a bit of a bit of pushback, you know, in Baghdad, but obviously up at Balad when they were being brought onto the base and being treated, they were fine. Um, on my my trips outside with um, with the guys, you know, I was just. I was just a different coloured uniform with the Americans, so it, you know they didn't really know. Mm. The, the, the Terps that we had were, were fine, um, you know, and the other interactions that we had were fine. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was no real animosity that I could see there. Mm. You know, every everybody speaks five five six. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you don't need to speak the same language to understand that, do you? No. 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 <laughs> How did you feel? coming home from that deployment you'd seen a lot of trauma yeah the i think you know by that stage there were very mixed emotions we didn't want to leave we wanted to stay there and finish off the tour with the guys that we were embedded with within that hospital because they were rotating home i, I want to say probably three to four months after we left mm -hmm. and you know as you know the the american guys do long hauls they do big rotations yeah so there was there was a bit of animosity about the fact that we had to come home and leave them there uh i think with the volume of trauma that we were seeing you well i know for me i got very blase um yeah it's just another gunshot wound to the head mm. you know have they got a tube in no uh, okay something else we've got to do when they get here you know it's it's just i was i think my bucket was pretty full when i yeah. got home and I didn't get a chance to empty it. Um, I think that contributed to a lot of the, the mental health issues that I had post Afghanistan because I hadn't actually dealt with a lot of the, the trauma that I'd seen in Iraq. And yeah, it just compounded, mm. you know, that, that adage of you need to empty that bucket every now and again. I just didn't get the chance to do it. You just popped it in a box and put it aside and yep. to deal with later but never got around to dealing with it, which is like the typical, yeah, typical military strategy for uh, managing trauma. Yeah, lock, lock in the box and, yeah, you can say it, typical man as well. Yep, that's fine. But, yeah, it's, it's I think, you, you know, you are right. It's it's the way, you know, in when I went through it, it was, you know, suck it up and get on with it. It's like, if you if you whinged about it, you were weak. If you talked about your feelings, you were weak. If you didn't want to do things, you know, you were weak. It's, yeah. You just had to get on with it and do it. 
and that's the way we dealt with it. And it's amazing what becomes normal. Oh yeah, yeah. When you're in that environment, as you said, yeah. Yeah, that normalization yeah. is just, and not only you know just how quickly it happens. It's just mm. you know it's it just happens. <laughs> So um, post your return to Australia from Iraq, you headed over to SASR, spent some time in Perth. Mm -hmm. Yep. How was that? Yeah, that was entertaining. Hmm? Yeah, getting posted into into the regiment with a green hat. Um, yeah, in all those sandies. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it rubbed a few people up the wrong way, um, but I was... I was there to do a job. I was there to be the to, to be the WOMED and just having a another coloured hat just sort of was a bit of a bonus and a bit of a cherry on top. Some people didn't see it that way, but um, you know there was there was a bit of uh, toing and froing about what I was going to wear, and uh, I was in no uncertain terms about what hat I was going to wear, and <laughs> took every opportunity to do so. Yeah, what they <laughs> wanted to pop a support staff. One on you, or yep, they, they, yeah. you know, I got told at one stage that there's only two hats there, sandy and blue, and uh, you know, I told them that best to go check your um, check your references on that one, mate. Yeah, you burnt it, <laughs> and there's always been that bit of rivalry, hasn't there, between the commandos and SASR? Yeah, there's always there's always been that banter, yeah, always, yeah, there always was, there always will be. And did your role differ greatly from what you were doing in the east to the west? Um, somewhat. I mean, because we were undermanned, um, I was doing a lot of the support roles. There was we never had enough people there, <clears throat> so we were always drawing or trying to draw. Um, diggers from from townsville or from brisbane to sort of backfill within barracks so we could go out and actually support you know all the taskings that were going on you know all the all the tats that were happening all the overseas trips with the squadrons because obviously everything was starting to ramp up then so you know it, it was i didn't have uh, i had one sergeant that was on long look i had another i didn't have another sergeant you know i had a couple of guys on uh, um courses so it was just a matter of trying to backfill mm. just to get, you know, to get all the all the support that was, you know, required to keep that place running, you know, all the courses that were being run, selection that was being run, you know, all the other stuff that just has to happen just to, to make the place tick along. Incredibly busy postings and yeah. really not any time to decompress from what you saw and did in Iraq. No, I think I think in my two years there, I was probably home for about four months, four or five months. Yeah. The rest of the time was all you know support and uh, you know getting ready for other stuff and you know helping um, helping the unit you know tick along. So um, I guess you really opted to spend a large part of your career embedded with infantry and the special guys. Mm. Who did you then really tick off to get posted back into? A health unit in two thousand and eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you could look at it that way, couldn't you? <laughs> it was. Um, I was being posted back to the east into a, another special ops role, and then had a bit of a discussion, a bit of a chat with the career manager, and then he wanted me to uh, to go to a health unit to to sort of tick that box. Um, and do him a bit of a favour 
uh, and I sort of I knew from the get-go that it wasn't going to be uh, a good look and I played my case and basically got told look dude you do this for 12 months and you will be guaranteed you'll be going to go you know back into back to two commando so yeah. I bit the bullet and said yeah no worries I'll do it um, but that's but that's the caveat you know I, I need to get back to back to where I belong yeah. that shift would have been hard though from being able to run your own show and having that autonomy in special operations to being back in regular army unit with a lot more rules and regs and a less generous budget for training and different tempo different people yeah yeah it's um I'd, I'd have to say that was probably without a doubt the hardest year of my life and probably there, there were there were some really good people there there were some very keen soldiers there with uh, a lot of drive but they just didn't get the support mm. um you know i'm sure there'll be other people that would disagree with me but yeah. you know from from what i saw and you know from the way i did business and what i sort of saw as the direction that people should be going it didn't happen and you know i got i got smacked for it mm. <laughs> i actually got sacked yeah right <laughs> was that the first time you'd got into strife or had you ever been under a, a defense force magistrate prior or <laughs> oh yeah 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 we've, we've all had a we've all had our little brush with the uh with the uh, with the army systems here and there for for doing the wrong things, you know, mm. diggers will be diggers, and then some people just don't yeah. learn. I've I've always sort of looked. I don't think anyone that's anyone that's worked with me because I've never never had people that work for me. We've always worked together, you know. And I'm I'm pretty sure if you ask anyone that that knows me, that I've always sort of looked after my soldiers, and that's been my primary my primary drive. Yeah, you know, it's, you're always looking after the people that. Are going to be looking after you so yeah it's um i i had a bit of a um a disagreement with some of the hierarchy there and they didn't like the way i do things and um <clears throat> tried to to take me to task and you know unfortunately they didn't have any any um documentary evidence to to say that they that i'd done what they said i had done which i hadn't <laughs> it's like you know what do you do it's crazy so back to to commando in 09. Yeah, that's right. And you were in one of the first non-infantry qualified CSMs at that point as well. Yeah, the, I think I was the first again. Yeah. Mm. So I had to had to do a little bit of uh, smart talking to get myself out of the the hospital. Like I said, you know, I had had that promise of of being there for a year and near the end of that year, I was told, no, no, you've got another year here. And I said, no, no, watch this and hold my beer. And went out a chat to uh, the then RSM of Two Commando, who was a mate of mine, and said, you need to make a phone call. He made a phone call. I had a posting order struck with, I think, a day. Fantastic. So, yeah, <laughs> sometimes it's good to know people. <laughs> yeah. I always say it's good to not epically piss anyone off too much in military health either because you will run into them again at some point oh yeah they might be making a decision about 
your career. So, yep. you know. <laughs> that, that, is, yeah. that is so true. And there's, there's plenty of people that I would definitely cross the road to avoid. And there's other people that I would cross the road to punch them in the throat. <laughs> Human nature. Absolutely. Eh? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was some talk about you not, not being infantry qualified and maybe you should go to Singleton. Yeah, there was... Um, during the whole pay case thing, there was uh, an issue with the fact that, you know, they, they turned around and said, I had all the other qualif- I had all the other qualifications necessary, except the fact that I hadn't met a 343, uh, which is ECN infantry. And I said, well, that's fine. Send me to Singleton. I'll go to Singleton as a boy too and, and do the basic course. And to, to which there was like some, some jaws that sort of dropped open and went, you want to do what? I'm like, I'm quite happy to go and do that. It doesn't worry me. You know, I'll, I'm sure that I'll just get assessed and up squatted from week one to week 12 yeah. and <laughs> and someone actually finally saw common sense and they went, okay, you, you don't need to do that, mate. <laughs> we, we, we know you're a complete idiot and you would do that, but um, let's err on the side of being sensible this time. So yeah, but yeah, that was a, that was an interesting, that was all just to do with the whole uh, the whole pay casing that was going on. And it wasn't just me that was involved in that. There was, you know, the the SIGs were involved in that. You know, some of the, the other qualified guys were involved in that just to try and to get everything across the line for, for some of the boys. So That would have been hilarious, though. Oh, yeah. A very qualified special ops medic who's done Rio and, what, at that point, 25-plus years. Yeah, working. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you'd probably be across the infantry minor tactics taught at Singo by that point. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I've probably had it you know, at least somewhat squared away. I would hope. So you got that job as a CSM there mm. and spent a fair bit of time um, capacity building and training mm. in the lead up to Afghan. Yeah, so we had um, we obviously did uh, did some MREs. Um, you know, helping the guys out, and unfortunately, the the Alpha Company MRE prior to prior to my deployment, so that was for Rotation Twelve. Um, we lost uh, we lost one of the guys on that um, when Mason Edwards was killed tragically uh, during the MRE. Mm. And, um, yeah, and then we rolled into our MRE while while uh, Alpha Company was was deployed and. So that was, we were rolling in to the support role uh, in 2010. Mm. That would have been horrific because you expect to lose people on operations to a certain extent, but not, not in training, you know. No, ex- exactly. You know, that was, uh, you know, that was a complete tragedy. And I don't think that there was, there was all the, all the things in place, but unfortunately, you know, just all those holes in that bit of cheese that I always talk about just, tragically lined up that day and yeah. you know, and and Mason was tragically killed. They did everything they could to try and to try and help him out. Um I know the I know the doctor that was involved in that. He was he was at RMO. Mm. He's actually still my GP at the, today. Mm. Um he was a previous uh a previous RN. Um and yeah, you know, a couple of the other boys worked worked tirelessly to do to do what they could, but you know Unfortunately, that was a, a catastrophic injury. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, it was one of those ones that. Mm. So you got yeah. over to Afghanistan 2010. Yeah. Very busy time. Yeah, it was. For special ops and also the 
regular mm. army mm. horses mm. as well. What were your first impressions? Uh, well, again, TK was, you know, in pretty well developed. You know, they'd had a, a few years to build everything up, so everything had built up around Camp Russell. So Camp Russell was sort of the initial outpost that started there and then you had the larger Dutch compound or Camp Holland which sort of grew off the back of that and the ANA compound on the other side of it uh, and a couple of the American assets, mm -hmm. the the aviation assets down along the flight line and, and Camp Ripley and um, Camp Cole which was down further to the, to the western end of the runway. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we got there and it was... You know, middle of the fight, middle of the fighting season, actually. Um, so it was, everything was pretty active. So it was pretty much straight into work. Uh, no, no time to sort of you know get 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 acquainted. We ripped in with the the people that we were you know taking over from, and they were pretty much it was like a day handover, and they were gone. You know, they basically handed handed everything over to us. You know, again, you didn't we didn't see it that much. Well, I didn't see it that much until I actually got outside the wire and. You know, it started a bit colder, but you know the scenery there is phenomenal. If it wasn't such a shit hole, it'd be a great place to visit. Yeah, if it wasn't so dangerous, it'd be an epic tourist uh, destination. Stunning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be an absolutely beautiful place if there wasn't, you know, if it wasn't set in the fourth century and there was, you know, muppets running around with IEDs trying to blow you up all the time. But yeah, it was uh, it was very busy, and you know, straight into straight into training, straight into um, one of my roles was looking after, looking after the puck centre, looking after the, yep. the persons under confinement that got brought in from the field. So we were running, running that. Uh, so any of the guys that got brought in, they'd get brought in and be tattooed there. If they ID'd them as a uh, potential, they got handed over mm -hmm. to the other authorities to get, you know, to be moved backwards to get further vetting. Uh, if we if they couldn't get anything on them, you know, there was no biometric data or anything on them in four days' time, they would um, be released back into the wild with some with some cash to get back to from whence they came. Yeah, right. And, you know, we'd you know, blindfold and, and ears and put them in the back of the back of a vehicle and take them out of the gate and and I'd sort of escort them off, off the compound. And it's interesting because even though you couldn't prove anything, you knew some of these pricks were... Yeah, you know, on the on the wrong side of the law, but you, know, you just couldn't finger them for it. You could see the evil in their eyes in that place. I reckon. Oh, when you when you sort of kick somebody out the gate and he looks at you, spits on the ground, and you know, draws his thumb across across his throat while he's looking at you, it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. I know what your game is, mate. You're not coming back for chai. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shit. We'll, yeah. We'll be seeing you later when I'm watching uh, the JDAM drop on your head in uh, in the socks. And very frustrating, I'd imagine, for the guys that have gone to the lengths of arresting and detaining and bring these yeah. dudes back for processing. And then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just seeing them walk out again. And next week they'll be putting an IED in the road that you're driving over. So. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. go, out and, go out and get the same, the same, uh, same contender again. And, yeah, it's like... It must have must have driven some of the boys mad. Mm. Yeah. How did you find? You also had a role over there working with the dust off crew. Pretty good mm. opportunity. Um, 
to get out and, and make an impact in terms of point mm. of injury, trauma care and uh, getting the injured back to TK. How was that? Yeah, that was probably one of the most rewarding things that I've done personally in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we had the opportunity. We had a, a sort of a loose arrangement with the the AME team that was down at Camp Ripley. So uh, I availed myself and made myself available probably every, if I could get away with it, every fifth day to do 24 hours on AME team because we would start generally at 1,700 to 1,700. Uh, and that, that morphed and changed a little bit, but um, that was generally what we did. And I'd, you know, I'd ensure that anything that I had coming up for the, for the, the 24 hours that I'd be away would be covered by someone else within Camp Russell. And, uh, you know, I'd sneak off down there and um, jump on the birds and do whatever we needed to do. And, you know, I, I thought that, Given the position that I was in and the skill set that I had, it would be stupid not to. Yeah. Yeah, well, you had the benefit of experience from Iraq at that point as well. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you know, one night, because we would stay with the the AMA team um, just off the flight line where they launched from, and one of the crew chiefs that I became really close with... uh, who said to me, you know, at any stage, because we, we sometimes we wouldn't fly together, we'd be on opposite birds. And he said, uh, if I'm out on a job, he said, you can always use my room. You can always, and there's always coffee in there, just fill your boots, mate, make yourself at home. Uh, and we were sitting there one night just having a, having a chat and flicking through some photos. And he looked at one of the photos I had from Iraq and he's like, he goes, dude, that's my fucking bird. I'm like, what, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that was my medevac bird in iraq and i looked at him i said dude you handed over to me in iraq so we we'd met five years prior um when he was flying ame then and i was actually receiving patients off them on the pad in uh, in iraq small world isn't it sometimes military medicine yep. yeah yeah wow. you, you could not have even presented that yeah it was, <laughs> it was just so so left field pretty cool yeah it was it was really cool you know Unfortunately, he's um, he's since passed away. He died in died in two thousand sixteen from from some pretty aggressive cancer. Yeah, which which they've which they're trying to link back to uh, to exposure in Iraq. But you know, it's like I think his family sort of missed that boat. Unfortunately, now, which is a real shame. There was a lot of nasty chemicals getting around. Yeah, there there was. You know, we had the old burn the old burn pit out the back of the hospital. That was where everything in the entire place got burnt. so And that plume of smoke used mm. to go through the hospital every day at yeah. about 4 o'clock. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Good old Iraq lung. Very hard to um, prove cause and effect, but uh, doesn't help the family at all at this point, does it? It's bloody awful. No, no. No, it's, no, it's horrible. No. In terms of mechanism of injury, we're... Those patients similar to what you were seeing in Iraq, IEDs, gunshot wounds, that kind of stuff? Yeah, a lot of the same. There was same but different. There was um, 
not a lot of formed projectiles and shaped charges. There was a lot of, obviously, IEDs and improvised IEDs, uh, a lot of GSW, a lot of frag, um, a lot of, we would actually, we were dealing with a lot more civilian trauma as well, because we would go out and we would actually physically retrieve civilian, uh, either injured or um, trauma patients if they presented to any of the, you know, any of the fobs yeah. or any of the patrol bases. So if they could, if they could get in and be, even be assessed um, and it was deemed that they needed to be picked up and brought back to TK to be either seen in TK or taken to Kandahar to the, uh, the Iraqi hospital in Kandahar, we'd do that as well. So there, there was a bit of everything. Um, yeah, it's my, you know, note was my first actual mission that I did with the, so it was Charlie Company 601st was the aviation asset we had some um, shadow dust off. Uh, I only met these guys like literally two days prior. I went down and got an intro off of them with um, with one of the outgoing guys and he sort of took me down and got, oh, you know, this is Slats, you know, this is his background. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no worries, cool. You know, sort of shot, shot the ship for about 20 minutes and then went back to, back up to, to Russell. And then I think it was about two days later, I got, um, I got dropped off down there, pulled up through the gate, and as I, I'm stepping out of the, the shitty old Hilux, the Hilo crew is running past me, and one of the guys said, "Here's your helmet, mate. You've got a job on." So it was, it was literally like I didn't, I didn't even know the crew. I just jumped on the bird. Off you go. Jumped on the bird, body armor on, mic'd up, because um, obviously it's coming in the period of darkness, uh, and just said to the crew chief, "Hey, have you got a set of nods for me here, dude?" <laughs> It's like, yeah, under your, under your seat. So got those on and got those up and running and um, had a bit of a decent flight out to, to uh, where did we go? Fob Anaconda. Mm-hmm. And rolled into, rolled into Anaconda. Sort of, um, there was an American SF team that was still in, doing a fighting withdrawal. They were still in contact um, coming back into Anaconda. They were getting chased up. So obviously we were coming in, uh, blacked out. They couldn't see us, but the dudes on either side of us in the in the hills were, were lighting up our helo. They could hear you, and they're just shooting to the sound. They, they could hear us, and I was shooting for the sound, and, and my crew chief I just said to him, what do you want me to do, dude? And he's like, just cover the left side of the aircraft. I'm like, okay. So I ripped open the door and just started, started firing, and um, I don't think that that's what they wanted me to do. He just wanted me to, to look out the left side of the aircraft. <laughs> But I, but I just started in, started shooting at muzzle flashes and because um, mm-hmm. I had a suppressed weapon, they couldn't hear me over the rotor noise, but they could they could see the the flashes in there. You know, like, mm. are you are you engaging? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was a that was a bit of a shit show. Was that one of the first times you had to fire your weapon in anger as well? Yeah, one of the first, yeah. 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 But um yeah. with you know with effective rounds coming back onto us, so but uh yeah, it was um it was a bit of a a shit show. There was about nine casualties and I was expecting them to be all neatly prepared for us when we got there. Packaged. Yeah, not the not the case. So uh, on the they were on the ground, they were, half of them weren't even treated, you know, there was 
I think there was a couple of KIAs which are which were ANA, um, and quite quickly, myself and the the other crew chief, who was the other medic, we figured out we are not going to get everybody on this bird. So yeah. he looked at me and he said, "Are you happy to stay here and we'll send in the chase bird?" So the chase bird's got no no medical equipment on it at all. It's just a, a stripped out gun gun carrier. You know, you've got guns on the side. So yeah. I, I just grabbed my kit and said, yeah, mate, no worries. So I had my kit with me and they lifted and then I loaded three on the floor and a couple in the seats and off we went and screamed back to um, screamed back to Kandahar. Mm. Yeah. And that's just the improvisation that's required, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just what platform we got, can we throw guys on the floor? Yeah, like... yeah. and that's what we had to do. So... Mm. Yeah, so that was that was interesting, and you know, a, quite a quite an interesting and eye-opening experience for job number one. Uh, we got we got back, refueled, shut down. So that was a big, you know, it was a, probably a, a good three or four hour trip all around. Got a bit of a feed in us, and we're just sort of having a bit of a feed and chatting, and off goes the radio again. Another nine line got dropped, and we're off to a, an Australian asset. Mm-hmm. So. One of the guys, unfortunately, or sorry, fortunately, that was that was quite benign. One of the guys had just had rolled his ankle on the side of a mountain and, you know, had fractured his ankle, so they couldn't get him off. So, again, another first. I got to do a I got to do a live hoist in a combat zone. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at night still as well. Not. Oh, I was just coming, just coming on to do one. Yeah. So yeah. So not a not a bad first day. Yeah, it's one way to start a new job. One way to start a new job, yeah, and it just sort of it continued along that lines, and and um, you know just varied varied states of of wounding, you know, different different things, you know, bilateral legs and you know frags to the face and gunshot wounds to the legs and you know through and throughs and chest and you know there was some just some some hectic ones we rocked up to, mm-hmm. you know, both both in and out of contact, so yeah. It made for challenging days and interesting days and nights. The those American pilots are pretty damn ballsy, aren't they? With where they will put their aircraft to retrieve a casualty. Oh. Um, hats off to them. One hundred percent. Yeah. Look, I I still talk to some of the guys now, and like one of the guys who was actually our team leader, who was a captain, then he's a lieutenant colonel now. Um, unfortunately, he's flying a desk, so I give him no end of grief about that. But yeah. Oh, I have nothing but respect for those guys. They were some of the most impressive pilots that I've ever seen. They would, like you said, they would put their helicopter anywhere you asked them to and pretty much in any condition. If there was somebody wounded on the ground, we were going in, you know, and on multiple times, you know, we flew into the middle of ticks, you know, with um, we had RPGs going over a radar disc on one of them, um, RPGs exploding you know, in pretty close proximity to the helo. And so, yeah, they're, um, they've got balls of steel, those boys. You know? Absolutely. You know, and, and, and they're sitting in the front of the helicopter, you know, and at least we had the opportunity to get out and, you know, do something. And they're just sitting there in this big, this big green target with a nice big red aiming mark mm. on the side. Yeah. And, and it 100% was an aiming mark as well for those that, if you have a declared Red Cross, and the Taliban don't give a shit. <laughs> so, what's what's that? It's just something to aim at. That's all it is. That's right. 
So, yeah, talking about having trust and faith and mutual respect in your pilots, I'll tell you about a couple of instances. So the same guy, the same the young captain that we used to berate mercilessly. We had, uh, I think it was two or three casualties in the back, and we were doing it just a benign transfer. We had to get these guys from TK to Kandahar. Unfortunately, it was Red Alarm. And as you know, you're not really supposed to fly in Red Alarm because you know it's work on ambient mm -hmm. light and there's, there's no moonlight. It makes for very poor visibility and poor flying conditions. So we're in the back of the back of the Black Hawk. And obviously TK's in a big bowl, so it's surrounded by mountains. There was only a couple of ways in and out and the grubs on the ground knew yeah. that. So we read a loom, winds are up, it was getting a bit dodgy, uh, we're on limits, and we're trying to get up over the mountains and we just couldn't get enough power. And I could see the mountain out my window. <laughs> and we dropped down and we tried again. And he was getting a bit frustrated and we dropped down and tried again. And I just said, mate, said i know you're a fucking great pilot i said but i'm going off nods because if we hit this mountain i don't want to fucking see it so i just went off nods and went off comms and i was just waiting to hit the mountain and then we just i could feel us descending i went back on the comms and he just said no i'm not going to risk it we're out of here just we'll go back and take him back to the to the roll yeah. two which we which we did and again he was um he could have pushed it and he could have tried but no to his credit he was smart enough to know when he couldn't do it. And, you know, he got, he got you know, the four crew plus the three casualties back, you know, safely, which was great. And then, and then there was another instance, you know, talking about, you know, when you have got faith in the pilot and everybody always thinks you get nice, clean, clipped handovers when you get handed over casualties. We um, we landed in a brownout on this riverbed, and I would always sit on the left side of the aircraft, and I've stepped out of the aircraft with my leg against the skin of the floor, and I couldn't physically see the aircraft with that brown bulldust that just got thrown up by the rudder yeah. wash. And um, I just hear over comms, you know, they're coming from the right, they're coming from the right. So I cross-cabined, same thing, and the first I saw of this this handover of the team that was carrying the stretcher was when they basically walked into me and they just gave me the stretcher. I slid it in and my handover consisted of gunshot into the head. He's not going to make it. That was it. And then they just disappeared. Yeah. yeah. So it was a, um, it was the SF guy who'd been shot through and through up through the door up top of his head. And he was, he was posturing. So he was, you know, he was on the way out and, the pilot just said, you know, what have we got, mate? I said, just, we weren't far from TK. We are probably like 15 minutes flying time. And I said, mate, just fly fucking low and fast. And he's like, no worries. So he ripped the guts out of that gearbox to get us back. And, um, you know, unfortunately, this guy didn't make it. But, um, you know, myself and the other medic were in the back just working on this guy, just chucking IOs in because he was so shut down. There was no way we were going to get any peripheral access on him. Um, and just just pouring fluid in him just to try and you know try and keep him you know stable in some way. You're carrying blood back then too. No, we didn't have blood. Yeah, okay, might have come in a bit later, but I suppose yeah, 15 minute transit time, and then you've got yeah. all the resources in TK. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, we were just yeah. using a little, you know, a little bit of um, just a lot of expander, but mm. um, yeah, and just yeah, I think uh, we got him, we got him back to the to the to the FST, and then I think he moved up to the roll two, but he didn't uh, he didn't survive much longer than that. He was mm. he was pretty pretty well cooked. But yeah, those um, like we said, those pilots, you know, they would go to great lengths, incredible lengths. Yeah, 100% working in high altitude, in dust yep. storms, in snow. They had the work. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, 100%. More respect, more respect for them than, than, than a lot of people I've got around. So 21st of June 2010, mm. 13 years ago this week. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. Um, incident for Australia and, and the US as well. Hilo went down. Yeah. Were you involved in that or had you just come off shift? I had literally just come off shift. Uh, like I said, I would work or generally we do five to five. Um, so by the time you've you've dicked around and, and deserviced and gotten back to up to um, to Russell because I was I was working independently. Then I just jump on a quad bike and zip around. So I get back up to Russell and and do service my gear and and uh, and kick back. Um, I think I had a feed. Then I racked out. Uh, and then the first I knew of it was when the the CSMD company until I was uh, was basically hammering on my door trying to kick my door in, and get me up. And uh, I'm like, "What's going on, mate?" He said, oh, "We've got a we've got a bird down." And I'm like, what the fuck? So, um, I was I was basically going to grab my kit and just bolt down to the flight line, and they said, no, we need you in the sock sea. So, went over to the sock sea, and then it was just a coordination of what was going on, mm. trying to figure out call signs because there'd been there was a bit of confusion. There'd been some change in some of the call signs prior to that that hit going out. So, some of the call signs had been moved around. So, there was a bit of confusion about who was on what bird. But uh, in the in the the wash up from that, you know, there was about fourteen boys on that bird, and it was a miracle that only, you know, as bad as it is, as bad as saying it is, it was a miracle that fourteen were killed, that that only four guys died. Um, mm. As bad as that is, you know, we lost, you know, we lost Scotty and, and Tim and Ben, and obviously Brandon was the uh, was the crewy on board. And Brandon, Brandon Silk was the best mate of one of the guys I was flying with AME, uh, one of the guys that I became very, very close to uh, that I've gone and visited in the States. And so, you know, he was dealing with that as well in the aftermath when we were still doing AME, AME missions. But, yeah, that was, that was a horrible night that, you know, when they brought, uh, you know, when they brought Tim and, and Scotty back um from the field i received both of those boys back in at the roll two and went through all the processes that we needed to do there and um then we mounted guards to look after them uh the hierarchy the oc and the the csm had headed up to kandahar to to be with the rest of the boys that obviously because they've been taken straight to the roll three mm-hmm. um and those that were injured those that were injured yeah yeah 
Um, the, the kilo that was on the ground, he did a, he and all the other guys on the ground did a phenomenal job at getting, getting all the boys out of that bird and getting them, you know, expeditiously transferred and moved up to, to CAF. Um, unfortunately, Benny Chuck died at CAF, um, from his wounds. And later on that, that evening, um, Mick, who was a CSN, was a, a really close mate of mine. We'd, we, he'd been in the unit since the inception. He was one of the old guard. Um, he and the and the OC came back with uh, with Ben's body, and uh, he and I popped him in an ambulance and and escorted him back up to up to the roll two. And uh, Mick was broken. He was just so devastated that he'd lost that he'd lost the boys. You know, so close to them going home. I mean, as as the OC was, as the rest of the company, and as everybody was, it was just. It was just fucked. It really was. It, there's no other word for it. Yeah. But, um, you know. How did you manage that as a senior NCO? You know, you're processing your own grief. You know these guys really well. Mm. But also you're running the ramp. You're still going on missions. You're treating casualties. You're trying to take care of your own team. Yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's, you know, I think... We did what we've always done. We just, we, we had a, a, you know, a debrief about it. We had a quick, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing too elaborate about it all. And then we just cracked on. Um, mm. Not long after that, the, the rest of, because that was Alpha Company, the rest of, uh, of Alpha, they ripped out because Delta was already in place. So the boys all went home um, and... Yeah, it's like you said. Uh, I was I was integral in running that ramp ceremony with um, with everybody else, and yeah, that was a hard day. That was the you know the flow and effects and the, the ripples that came out of that. It's just, I mean, everybody wanted a bit of payback, but you know when it's like a you know a two dollar nut that fails, or you know miscommunication or pilot error or whatever you want to call it. I don't think they've ever really gotten to the to the um, to the cause or to the root cause, um, you know, some spatial disorientation, whatever, who knows. Mm. But, you know, when when we were doing the cleanup later on and, you know, all the weapons and, and gear ended up coming back in, you know, when, you, when you're seeing, you know, minimum machine guns bent in half and, you know, nods on helmets that are twisted, you know, 270 degrees, it's like you just realise the amount of force that those boys survived. It's just, like I said, it's incredible that anyone survived that, you know, and, and some, you know, some of those guys have gone under incredible things, you know, it's, you know, it's, they're, they're representing at the Invictus Games and, you know, they're, they're getting on with their lives and, you know, they've rebuilt themselves and, you know, more power to them. And I've got nothing but respect for those guys, yeah. you know, for what they went through that night. Absolutely. But yeah, it was, um, that was a shit night, but, but like, that whole that whole period that I was there was we lost ten guys across, you know, ten ten Australians, and that was I think that was the worst period that we've had. Yeah. You know, you know since the end of Vietnam, but um, yeah, it was yeah that was by by far and you know and away the worst night and you know then a a repeat event of that in you know two thousand and twelve with another helo going down. Yeah. yeah, with Merv and Gal. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I just talked to Christy about that the other day. So yeah, yeah. very similar. 
Yeah. Just terrific. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. But that's what happens when you get in helicopters. Sometimes it's like you can't. Yes. You're not the master of your yeah. own destiny anymore. Well, you're probably not on the ground either. Yeah. There's a lot that can <laughs> hit you either way in a country like Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you can do everything right and still get fucked up. What yeah. do you think the biggest medical advances were uh, or lessons learnt from in that tactical medicine space that come out of the our time in the Mio, but particularly from Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, look, without a doubt, the use of tonicos. Number one. 100%. Yeah, number one. I mean, I saw in Iraq we had like the Generation 1 tonicos. They were coming on the scene. They were the, they had this like a steel windlass bar. They had a steel locking bar, a steel lockdown nut. Um, so it's, you know, it's funny how lessons that are learnt over history and, and learned in, you know, sealed in people's, you know, with people's blood to sort of get forgotten. You know, they've been using tourniquets forever and then it's just sort of, I don't know why they fell out of fashion, you know, the whole you know, degradation of the limb, you know, distal to the application point. But, you know, we, we saw without a doubt, you know, the use of tourniquets on, on single and multiple, you know, amputated limbs, yeah. you know, saved guys lives 100 percent, you know and then for such a simple tool you know we often talk about you know those three types of casualties you know the person that you don't need to do anything for them and they'll survive there's that casualty that it doesn't matter what you do they're not going to survive and and then there's those guys that are just sitting on that knife edge and just one intervention will will mean the difference and a tourniquet mm. is that one thing yeah or can be that one thing and we saw we saw that on multiple occasions yes yeah, yeah applied very easily and very quickly even while under fire still yeah you, no. you know and um yeah just life-saving yeah you know mm. self-application and you know we we all know that those things don't tickle no, no, they no. they bloody hurt, but of course I do. Yeah. You know, and that's that's how we know they're working. <laughs> not as much as death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's mm. it. But yeah, I, I think you know the application of tourniquets, hundred percent. Yeah, they just a simple, effective thing that just means a difference between life mm. and death. Yeah. How did you feel coming home? Um, yeah, coming home was the same as it was from Iraq I, and I was, I was obviously glad to be home, but you've got that. It's just so instantaneous, you know, one minute you are in the middle of Afghanistan screaming across the desert in the back of a black Hawk and literally, you know, 24 to 48 hours later, you're back in Sydney, yeah. you know, it's thrown back into the middle of what's going on. And I, I was cooked. I hadn't processed anything from Iraq and I was very angry. You know, again, uh, I thought there was more that I could have done. And I think I'm not alone in that sort of thought. I think every, everybody sort of feels that yep. way. We, we all feel that we could do more. Yep. Um, but yeah, from, from a personal 
point of view, yeah, I was cooked. I was, I, I wasn't dealing with it and I don't think I wanted to deal with it. When did you get around to kind of unpacking that and dealing with it? Uh, yeah, probably not until, probably properly not until about 2014. I think, you know, I was, I, I transitioned out and that was a pretty, pretty sketchy process as it was. But I was, you know, I was working for another company doing some, some paramedic work because I was, um, I was an ICP by then. Uh, so we actually, I remember quite distinctly, we went to take my, my eldest son to go and, and see a site to get some assessments about, um, you know, some issues he was having. And we walked out and the site, I walked out to, to do something and the site turned to my wife at the time and said, he's got issues. He's got fucking problems. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, and, and I'm like, hang on a minute, I'm not here about me. Uh, and yeah. I, I think for you know, I think for a long time, you know, I I didn't want to admit that. Hmm. I think I still maintain that mindset of, you know, it's weak to speak. It's you know, we don't do that. It's like suck it up, get on with it. It's like yeah. That's Whatever. The that's that's the job. It's that's that's the shit that happens, and you just deal. And yeah, I think that was. It took me a long time to get to that point, and it's probably you know only recently that I'm getting, you know, probably the last five years I'd say that that it's really gotten to the point where I'm, I'm in a much better space. Yeah. You know. You know, the last five to seven years, you know, since yeah, and it's but it's it's been a hard slog. <laughs> it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. It's a continual continual battle sometimes. Yeah, because what you see and have dealt with is not normal. No. And <laughs> your reactions were really appropriate at the time to get mm. you through it. But yeah, you gotta unpack that and and I'm I'm no psych at all, but yeah you got to open that box and deal with it at some point or just eat you up. So good on you for doing that. Yeah. Well, trust me, it wasn't easy. It's, you know, it's, it's like everything. It's, you've got to find that that's something that works for you and not, not every avenue of treatment works for everybody. I mean, I tried the medication route and that didn't work for me. I just felt like I was, you know, on a, on a sitting in a tunnel, you know, with blinkers on and, all I could see was what was directly in front of me. I could not see left or right. I couldn't see any way out of what I was what was happening, and it, it was just it was making me angrier, making me worse, you know. And you know, like like every every good soldier, drinking to excess, mm. um, yeah, drinking for success, whatever you want to do, just to numb those uh, emotions and yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, for a little while, yeah. Hmm. So you touched a little bit on getting out of defence, and that come you know, a few years later, you had all the prereqs for RSM. What was the catalyst to then discharge? Yeah, so I literally had my posting order uh, on promotion to go uh, to So Command headquarters as a woe one. And I think there was a combination of issues. Number one, my wife at the time, 
she flatly did not want to go to Canberra and I was not real keen on going married separated. I could see the sort of writing on the wall that if I did take that position from there, it would have been that, you know, that swing swings and roundabouts about where would I go after that? I would have, you know, potentially have gone to the school as the RSN there. And then it's like, where do you go after that? You, do you go to like a brigade or do you take commission? Yeah. And I didn't want to write a desk. I was just, mm. I've always been on the tools and I always wanted to be on the tools. I, I didn't have any desire to be writing a desk. You know, I, I had to do that, you know, somewhat in those, my last two postings, but I still had the opportunity to do other things. So I think that um, and the writing on the wall with the way sort of defence was sort of headed, um, I, I didn't really want to be involved in it um, to that greater extent. I was sort of looking for a little bit of fulfilment in another area where I could, you know, try and make a difference somewhere else. But, you know, after 26 odd years, you're pretty bloody institutionalized. Um, yeah. yeah so yeah. <laughs> it, it makes, it makes things a bit challenging. What can make things challenging? Uh, so yeah, I was, I took, um, I took long service leave and was you know, had a position sort of established for me at a, at a company in Brisbane um, that I came up to and that morphed quite quickly from what the position spec was supposed to be to you're now going over to New Guinea 21 days on, seven days off um, as a primary uh, intensive care paramedic for a job, plus you're also running the logistics, plus you're also running the camp. And the setup, and it just it just became too much. Um, so I peeled off from that, and then um, basically was lucky enough to to get into a, an ICP position with CareFlight. So so that was sort of um, with that and doing some offshore work was was where I sort of found myself, and and that and that was a good fit, you know, working working as an independent um, clinician, you know, looking after another generally tight group of guys, um, good teams, um, you know, all the while sort of trying to maintain that balance at home, which which didn't work too well for that New Guinea piece and um, you know, led to the, the breakdown of that relationship. You know, that and, um, you know, me not dealing with my anger issues and, you know, a few other bits and pieces. But um, I think the, the hardest thing, was that transition, you know, learning learning how to be um, a civilian after being mm. institutionalised for 26 years is bloody hard. You know, you're... Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just hard. And, you know, the Army's very good at training you to do something, but they're not very good at deprogramming you to do something else. Mm. they're very poor at it. Yeah. And did you find you were always, once you've had that adrenaline peak of, you know, shooting out of an open door of a, yeah. of a helo going mm. in under fire to pick up casualties, that level of adrenaline, th there is no match on the outside to that. 
So did you find you were chasing that kind of feeling a little bit, like trying to find your purpose in a new way? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, if, if we if we take the kids to the, you know, the Sea World or Dream World or whatever, and it's like, okay, yeah, we're on the we're on the biggest scariest roller coaster. Okay, whatever. Mm. Yeah, yes, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, there, there's sort of nothing that sort of matches that that adrenaline rush. You know, it's it's I know it's so cliche. It's 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 the best of times. It's the worst of times. But it seriously is. Mm. It's the you are you are doing you're doing a job under so much stress and, you know, there's no room for mistakes because a mistake is just the worst thing that can happen. You know, I was quite content with the fact that I wasn't going to make it back from Afghanistan. Yeah. I honestly thought I was going to to get stitched, stitched up in, in a medevac bird because I'd heard all the, all the horror stories about the, you know, from the flight crews, you know, you do this long enough, you're going to get whacked, you know, whatever else. But I was, I'd prepared myself, you know, mentally, physically and spiritually that I wasn't going to make it back. Um, I don't know why, I just had that feeling. Mm. And then you got to readjust to the fact that you are back and alive and yeah, what's yeah. next. Mm. Yeah, what's next yeah. and... <clears throat> How do you how do you find your purpose? How do you repurpose yourself? How do you rebuild yourself? What would you say your biggest challenge has been, and how did you overcome it? I think just finding that fit, finding something that I can get my teeth into that I enjoy again, and I found that with being uh, an ICP working offshore, mm-hmm. and I've also found that with being an emergency nurse, yeah, uh, I can. I'm getting enough of a dopamine hit that it's satisfying me, but I'm not getting overloaded, mm. and you know, I'm and I'm actually doing something that makes me feel good, and I'm making a difference. So I think that and being in a incredibly loving and stable relationship has saved me. So yeah, it's um, you know the big the big bald tattooed guys talking about love and relationships. So. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> Tell me about your role with the medical company Soto International. What are you doing with them? Okay, so I'm um, one of the directors with Soda. So Soda was started by another guy, Tim Webb. Um, Tim and I met in Boraria. He was one of our chooks, a very qualified chook, um, filthy handbag. Uh, he then went on and did uh, selection in the regiment. So I again ran into Tim in the regiment when I was putting him through his uh, patrol first aiders course. So we were, we were pretty good mates and sort of got along pretty well from there. So he wanted to, to set up his company and he reached out to me um, to come on board as one of the directors. So SOTA is basically, we're a, we're a not-for-profit charity and we're working in that strategic space to sort of develop that immediate medical and retrieval response in that you know, remote and austere environment mm-hmm. to 
assist with the, the loss of life from trauma. Yep. So we've got, you know, extensive, obviously both military and civilian backgrounds. You obviously know all about my medical military background. Um, Tim has gone on to do uh, offshore work within that space, as have I. We've also got a group, a core group of, of personnel uh, that are all clinically current um, within their various roles. So we draw on them to, you know, provide that that standardised and accredited training to those emergency first responders, you know, the police, fire and rescue volunteers, the RFS, the CFA. So we, we want to, to get that gold standard that's internationally accredited mm-hmm. and embed that because it's pretty loose in Australia at the moment, particularly across, let's say, for example, the police forces. You know, they are all running off their own sheets of music. There's no standardised treatment. Uh, we all know that Army's TCCC package is a bit ad hoc. It's taken from here and there, so it's not it's not accredited or aligned to anything. So we are trying to get that accredited standardise credentialed courses in both the TCCC space, the first on scene space um, and the the trauma emergency care. Mm. So without that tactical piece. So we do tactical for, for police and for military, but we have the, the other piece which is more aimed at the civilian side because we're all working in dangerous situations. Yeah, just different threats. Yeah, be they environmental or whatever. Yeah, yep. exactly. Be it environmental, be it you know the work pay, the work space that you're in. You know, it could be compressed gas, mm-hmm. it could be you know loads on the train, whatever it is. You know, it's all intrinsically dangerous. So we're just trying to get that standardised training that is accredited, you know, and gold standard. That, and that's what we want to do. It'd be really helpful if we all uh, use the same acronyms and spoke the same language in that environment. Oh, and wouldn't it? Um, wouldn't it? then the knowledge that we have gained collectively across both the civilian and military sector could be pushed forward to save lives. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the bottom line, isn't it? You know, we're all about the assistance of those that are injured, you know, that, that initial response, that first on scene, that delivery of you know those those interventions that can make a difference. Mm. So yeah, that's us. What's next for you? Still pushing that forward? Yeah, we're still we're still pushing that forward. We've uh, had some some good work. We were down in down in Canberra doing some stuff with uh, the ACT emergency services down there. We've had a a few courses uh, up and about around the place. We're uh, expanding our training personnel pool. We're looking at going and doing some courses uh, over at the West Coast and getting some some major players involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's in that space. Apart from that, for me, I am, as you are well aware, now a nurse. Yeah, dark side. <laughs> I went over to the went over to the dark side after all those years of uh, of hacking on nurses. Um, <laughs> And calling, you know, calling my boss "ma'am" all the time, which he loved. Uh, we've got a male, male nurse officer, but yeah, yeah. So um, I've been uh, been the emergency nurse for about four years now. 
yeah uh, which i love i'm very i'm very lucky where i work i work with an incredible group of people so we're not um we don't see that high acuity trauma we we sort of feel that space you know just below that high below that high acuity stuff so yeah it's good it's Mm. um it, it keeps me balanced it keeps me focused it allows me to that flexibility to do the other work with soda um, and you know do a bit of training. I I teach in one of the other hospitals in town. Do some stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, tr- currently trying to to pull a book together. Okay. Yeah. Let yeah. us know when it's out. We'll give it a plug. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's been a bit of a a bit of an ongoing saga for the last couple of years. But it's you know I've got I've got the bones together. I've got you know, about seven or eight chapters sort of put together and. It's just trying to to trying to make it interesting enough that people actually want to pick it up, but um, just don't go. This is another bullshit story. Um, yeah. So um, once I've got a manuscript together, we'll hopefully be looking for somebody to cast their eye over it and see if it's worthy to get out there. Yeah. So a bit yeah. of a bio. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. and sort of you know expanding on some of the things that we did overseas, and you know trying yeah. to. Um, trying to get some of the some of the stories of other other guys out there. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so it's all um it's all about that storytelling, isn't it? You know, the mm. some of this stuff gets lost in the in the midst of time. And I think it's almost neglectful to not tell those stories for those that didn't make it home or for yeah, those that yeah. have left permanently injured mentally and or physically. Yep, hundred um, percent. If if we're not learning from it and not pushing those ideas out there then, yeah, we're kind of neglecting their legacy a little bit, I think. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What advice would you give to perhaps the young medic out there listening who wants to go and work with SOCOM or complete selection? What are your hot tips? What would you tell them? What would I tell them? I'd tell them to go and do it. <laughs> Have a crack. Have a crack. You don't know if you don't know. It's, yep. like, um, it's like anything else. Like I said to you, it's... I would have, I would have hated to have gotten to the end of my career and gone, "What if? Mm. What if I'd have had a go at that?" You know? And I think you've got nothing to lose. You just need to commit to a path forward and run after it. You know, it's the only person you've got to compete with is you. Is the person in the mirror? Mm. You know, just be your harshest critic. Um, you know, that makes growth. You know, you look at yourself. If you can be happy with that person that you're looking at in the mirror every day, you're going to have a good life. You know, but I think you, you just need to be able to chase it. Just surround yourself with those people that are like-minded. And if you have a goal, just keep pushing towards it. Don't don't let anybody tell you no, because you can do whatever you want. You really can. Great advice. Yeah. So that's... Thank you for just sharing a little bit about your incredible career. Thanks for coming on to Care Under Fire and thank you for your service. <laughs> you are very welcome. Thank you for your service and thank you for allowing me the opportunity. I think it's an incredible thing that you're doing. More people need to understand and you know have the ability to, to hear and to see know some of the stories that are out there and there's certainly some incredible stories to be told you know i'm i'm just a very very small part in 
a big organisation and I've always said, you know, I've always stood in the shadows of great people. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Thanks for allowing me the opportunity. Thanks, mate.